Well, I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us for our Wednesday night service. We are going through some passages out of Psalms, and we've been in Psalm 64. It's a little psalm, but surprisingly, we've been able to uh, kind of stretch it out a little bit. And, and it's just a reminder that whatever you take in the Word of God, there's always more that could be said. There's always more that we need to understand. And sometimes we can get too detailed, I understand that. And we can kind of lose the, uh, the main point of what somebody is saying in the Scripture, what the Lord is saying, actually. And uh, then other times we can just fly past some things that really have an awful lot to uh, say to us and that could really enrich our lives. And we've been looking here at uh, David, like so many of his psalms, uh, he seems to be in some kind of, of trouble, some type of a dilemma. And I think that we make the um, uh, probably the wrong assumption about life that if I'll do everything right, then everybody's going to like me and everything is going to go well for me. And I think in the deep recesses of our heart and our mind, we know that's not true. And yet that's kind of what we expect. And that comes out, of course, whenever we experience some kind of grief or tragedy or something. We say, why? Why is this happening to me? Well, anytime we ask that question, it, it could be that we are genuinely seeking answers. Lord, is there a reason? Is there a purpose in this? And that's always a good thing uh, to ask. And I think it's probably a good place to start whenever something doesn't go right. Lord, is there something wrong in me? Is there something that needs to be corrected? There may be. There may be. And there probably is in the vast majority of situations. If you're anything like I am, there's always something that needs to be learned or corrected or whatever. Uh, but sometimes we ask the question, why? And it's more out of this... Um, surprise, bewilderment, and it's more like saying, how could this be happening to a good person like me? How could this be happening after I've done everything, you know, right and everything perfectly? It's kind of the implication. I know we don't say that, but it's kind of the way that we feel. And we forget that sometimes when you live in the glory of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord, and you are living an upright life, maybe we should call it an upright life, you kind of become a target for the enemy. Um, we tend to think that doing right and being right and walking with the Lord is going to protect us from all of that. And ultimately, of course, it does. Be very clear about that. But in day-to-day -day life, we're going to have some problems and the enemy's going to take aim and shoot arrows at us. And that's, that's kind of where David found uh, himself as he wrote this psalm. But the good news is this is not a depressing psalm. It's fact, in fact a very hopeful psalm as David reminds us of some things that we need to have in our life. We've kind of outlined this taking these messages. We've talked about David's prayer. Then we've talked about David's problem, the attack of the enemy. We've talked about David's protection. And this week we're going to look at David's praise. David ends this on a very, very hopeful note. And I think uh, we forget the power and the responsibility that we have in just simply praising the Lord. Let's read uh, the entire psalm. It's not very long. 
Verse 1 of Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O Lord, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Remember we said sometimes the fear of something is worse than the actual event. Verse 2. Hide me from the secret plots, emphasize secret, plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. There's that word again. And they say, who will see them? And they devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Every criminal looks for the perfect crime, don't they? Both the inward thought and the heart of men are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. So let's talk about this and looking at that 10th verse, that very last one, about what the the righteous do. And uh, just to repeat it, just so that we're clear on everything, the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him and all the upright in heart shall glory. And I kind of emphasized certain words there because that's what we're going to look at. First of all, uh, let's think about David encouraging us to praise the Lord. Uh, In several of the Psalms, they're called the Hallel Psalms. The word Hallel means praise. We get our word Hallelujah. That first part of it, Hallel is praise. And uh, the Yah on the end of it is short for Yahweh, praise God, praise the Lord. And the Bible commands us to do that. We are to give praise to the Lord and we are to constantly be thinking about ways that we can be hallelujah people in everything that we do and the things that we sing and the way that we preach and the way that we respond and in the way that we even live. We ought to be, uh, every part of our life ought to be a hallelujah, a praise to the Lord, something that we feel in our hearts and something that other people can see in our lives and certainly hear from our lips. How often do we give praise for God? Well, someone might say, well, I don't really have any reason to praise the Lord. And uh, there are those times when it is very, very difficult to find reasons to praise the Lord in your life, in your circumstances, in the things that you're going through. And I'm not here to rebuke you for that because that certainly would be true. In fact, I think David would say, I get you. I, I know where you're coming from. There were times when David, even in his own psalms, 
They, they are very dark and they're kind of depressing. There's a tone of, of defeat. There's some questioning things in there. And uh, yet David is the one who is described as a man after God's own heart. So there are those times when we might look and say that in the midst of attacks, in the midst of grief and trials, those kind of things, and maybe I don't really find some good reasons to praise the Lord in my circumstances, but in the last verse of this psalm, there are some very good reasons that at any point in life, at any time in life, at any circumstance of life, any, you can always look to these. So let's talk about them. Number one, we can praise God for forgiveness. David says in verse 10, the first two words, the righteous, the righteous. Who are the righteous? Well, we might uh, think about David. Well, he's righteous because, as we said, he's a man after God's own heart. But is that what made him righteous? And did that guarantee that he had a righteous life? Okay, let's stop and think about his life and think about what happened. Uh, David was a good man in terms of being a good king. He was a good man in terms of his worship. Think about all of the psalms that he wrote and think about the things that he was able to accomplish for the Lord. But let's also be honest, he was a lousy father. Uh, he, he was not a good man when it came to being a father to his children. Uh, very bad in discipline and some of the things that he let go on and some of the things he didn't handle and some of the ways he treated uh, you know, his children, they were, they were not real good and it caused a lot of turmoil in his family. Let's also think about the big one that everyone thinks about and what about the thing with Bathsheba? Not only the fact that he lusted after her, but the fact that he uh, actually had sexual relations with her and then had her husband murdered in order to cover up his sin. I mean, that, those are not the things that a righteous person does. So how do we reconcile all of this? How did David get his righteousness? And he got his righteousness the way all of us get our righteousness. You see, we tend to think that righteousness comes from performance. If I'll act right, then I, that means that I'm righteous. But the Bible proposes it the other way. The Bible says you have to have your heart changed, your nature changed. That's what it means to be born again. And it's because of the change of the heart and the work of God that we do righteous things. So you have to become righteous in order to do righteousness. Because you see, for the lost person, for the sinner, as we'll say, everything they do, even if it looks good, it comes from a wicked, rotten, deceitful heart. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like a whitewashed tomb. Your performance may be good. You may look good on the outside, but inside there's uh, rottenness, corruption, dead men's bones. Well, that's what so many people try to do. I'm going to change my life, and on December 31st of 2020, I'm going to make a resolution that everything changes on January the 1st, 2021. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to start giving to the Lord's work. I'm going to do all that, and then I will have the fruit of righteousness. 
And I'm going to just propose that whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's David, or anybody except the Lord Jesus Christ, you need a righteousness that does not come from you. Theologians call it an alien righteousness. Alien, I know we all automatically think of space stuff and UFOs and all of that. Alien just means it's not in you, it's outside of you. Well, what in the world do they mean by that? It's got to come from God. It has to come from Him, and it has to be given to us, and it's given to us, of course, by faith. The Bible uh, tells us that righteousness always comes outside of us and only from God. And it says in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what does the Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, say? Abraham... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do you mean? Just believing God? Yeah, that's where it all started. When Abraham put his faith in the Lord and believed what God said, that changed him. And he became righteous simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply by faith in the Word of God. And what happened as a result of that is a heart change caused his actions to change. And that's true for you and that's true for me. When we sing that little song, Change My Heart, Oh God, Make It Ever True, that's really where it starts or that's where it ends. That's either where it's true or that's where it becomes hypocritical, in the heart. Now, God knows our heart. And there are times when my motive is not right and yours is not right. And that's where God, as a loving Heavenly Father, loves us so much that according to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, He disciplines us and He takes care of that. And so when I surrender myself to Jesus as Lord, then it becomes His responsibility to train me in righteousness, to deal with my thoughts, to deal with my motives, to deal with my heart, and He's very, very, very good at all of that. I remember when our kids were little, one of the things that Sammy and I agreed on was that we would discipline more about attitude than action. Because when you have a kid that basically is uh, compliant but it's fake, and uh, you can tell that they have a rebellious heart. There's that really old corny story about um, back in the days before seatbelts and car seats and all of that. A little girl was standing up in the seat in the car by her mother. Her mother is getting ready to drive. She tells the little girl, sit down. The little girl ignores her. She says, I said, sit down. The little girl ignores her, and the mom finally goes, you better sit down if you know what's good for you. And the little girl, can't you see this? She sits down, folds her arms, sticks that lip out, and she goes, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Okay? That's the way kids act. But being fair, don't we do that sometimes when it comes to the Lord? Oh, we do some things. Sometimes we go to church on the outside, but on the inside, we're at a ball game. On the inside, we're at the lake. On the inside, we're at home sleeping. See what I mean? And there are times when we may do some things like we write out a check to give to the Lord. And we do that on the outside. But on the inside, we're resentful and bitter and thinking of all we could do with that money. And we really don't worship the Lord in doing that. And we could go on and on and on with that. See, God looks 
to see what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what's going on on the inside. And he disciplines us for our attitude. He changes. He's working to change your attitude. That's what we tried to do with our kids. You see, uh, if we told Taylor when he was a little toddler, you know, once he got old enough to understand what no meant and all of that kind of thing, and we said, don't touch this top of this uh, pretend it's a coffee table, and he looked and he went and did that, that was going to get him in big trouble. Now, if he's just walking by it and he stumbles into it, or he forgets and steadies himself by it, that's a different matter. But when the attitude is one of, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do it just because I want to do it, that would get him, as you can see, into some trouble. Even though touching the table was no big deal, but the attitude was a big deal. You understanding what I'm saying? In our lives, God is working on us to get it to where we don't just legalistically obey him just because we're scared not to or because he's bigger than us and he's going to, you know, get us if we don't, but to do what we do out of worship, to do what we do out of love, and to do everything that we do out of praise to the one who died on the cross for our sins, bore the judgment of God in our place as the innocent one for the guilty so that we could receive his righteousness, that whatever Jesus did that pleased the Father... Remember God the Father looked down on Jesus and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, all of that was put on my record book whenever I trusted Christ as my Savior and Lord. And now God the Father sees me as having the righteousness of Christ. That's not my own. That's not my performance. That is by faith. And that, folks, that's the gospel. We cheapen the gospel so much by saying, walk an aisle, or pray a prayer, or ask Jesus into your heart. None of those things are the gospel. None of those things are. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for us, that our sins might be paid for and judged on the cross of Jesus Christ, where he bore the wrath of God for us, and then he gives us his righteousness, what he earned, what he was able to do for the glory of God that we could never do. And he gives that to us freely. You got any reason to praise God? Well, your job may stink. Your kids may be rebellious. Your check, uh, paycheck may not be enough. You might be sick. You might be having trouble with your neighbors. I mean, we could go on and on and on. But if you are a born-again believer i got a reason for you to praise God. You have been forgiven. That's what David talks about when he mentions those who are righteous. Secondly, you know, we can praise God for our future. You know, um, Jeremiah 29, 11 is quoted so many times by people. You know, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. You know that verse. And that was actually written to Israel. Okay, that's not really written to me. There's truth in it that we all can understand and apply, but it really wasn't written to me. It was written to them. And here's something that a lot of people don't understand. That verse that is so hopeful and everybody likes to claim was written to them as they were getting ready to be invaded, as they were getting ready to be uh, plundered, conquered, and deported for 70 years of captivity 
in Babylon. Oh, man. You know what the Lord is saying to them? The worst thing you could ever imagine is getting ready to happen to you. But God was saying, but I haven't forgotten you. You're still going to go through it. It doesn't mean you're going to be exempt from it. But I've got plans for you. I've not abandoned you. And I'm going to bring you back. And that's going to be 70 years. And a lot of the people that read that verse or heard that verse from Jeremiah weren't going to survive the captivity. Most of them wouldn't. But God was still, his plan was still going to be intact and on on course. Now that's a principle we can hold on to. And David is saying here that there is a future for those who are the righteous, those who have been forgiven. Notice that he says that the righteous shall be glad. Notice shall be, that's future tense, shall be glad But these next three words are important, in the Lord, glad in the Lord. Maybe not so much by politics, maybe not so much by the economy, but in the Lord there will be gladness. You know, we've got to face facts. Not every situation is a happy one. When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you need comfort. But it's not a happy time, is it? There are times when we are disciplined by the Lord. And the Bible says that discipline for the present time is not pleasant, but it is a grievous thing. It's an unhappy time. Times of divine discipline, that's not a happy time when you're going through that. There are times when there are attacks and battles that come to us from the enemy, and those are not times where we sing zippity-doo-dah and talk about bluebirds on our shoulders or anything like that. But understand this, the forgiven ones can expect joy. Remember Psalm 30? Weeping may endure for the night. See, the nighttime. That's a metaphor for the dark, hard, difficult times. You weep. That's real. That's genuine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no chastisement for weeping when times are hard. Jesus wept, didn't he? But the verse goes on to say, but joy comes in the morning. David always understood there's a future for those who are righteous. And so we can expect joy to come in this life and certainly in the next because suffering is a part of life in a fallen world and that splashes over on all of us, of course. And living a righteous life does not protect you from um, suffering and all of that, but it does protect you, listen to this, from making it worse. You know, if uh, you are going to live in a sinful world, If you don't participate in the sin, you're going to be a little farther ahead of those who do fall into sin. And so uh, we want to live a righteous life, and we want that righteousness to be there. Doesn't guarantee we won't suffer, but it's a whole lot better than just, you know, making it worse by falling into sin. Because we do reap what we sow. The Bible is very clear about that. But understand that even in this life, whatever we may go through, and with the unhappiness and sadness, the trials, the sorrows, the discipline, and all of that, we're going to a place called heaven, and heaven is a place of endless joy. Your day's coming. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, 
nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even imagine what God has for you. The half has not been told, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You know, uh, some people have said over the years, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Let me tell you, in 40 years of ministry, I've yet to see that. I've never seen anybody like that. And the problem is we're too earthly minded to be any heavenly good. And that's really what we ought to focus on. Thirdly, David said that we can praise God for faith. The Bible says that the righteous hear the next phrase, that they trust in him. And that means we run to the Lord as a shelter, as a refuge, like Oklahomans maybe go into a Frady hole when a tornado's coming. He is our shelter, and we trust in him. And everybody lives by faith in something or someone. They have faith in themselves. They have faith in a relationship. Oh, you make me feel brand new and all of that kind of stuff. Or maybe in a career or politics or you know, we get in a car without even thinking that we might have a wreck or be killed. We get in an airplane without really thinking about it. We may have faith in science. But the key to this verse is that we have faith not in things, not in stuff, not in circumstances. But our faith is in him. We take refuge in him. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but, the contrast is, the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's what we are to walk by, faith in the Lord, knowing that God is true, knowing that he cannot lie, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he has conquered everything, knowing that his plan is intact. We run to him and we trust in him as the all-powerful one. And then the fourth thing, we can praise God for fellowship. Now, uh, obviously, I needed a word that started with F because you can't have three of them and not go to the fourth one. But um, let me tell you where I got that. It says, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Look at the word all, all the upright. You know what that implies? It's plural. It's not just me. I'm not the only one that's going to be happy. I'm not the only one who, you know, Sometimes we sing songs that kind of give the idea that we're the only ones who walk with God and the only ones who have joy. That's just not true. Notice here it says all the upright, all of those who are the forgiven, all of those who by faith have trusted in the Lord and received his righteousness, all of them, all of them. And I think implied is together all the upright in heart shall glory. So when we think about the word all, it's going to include every person, every man, woman, boy, and girl who has trusted in Christ and believed the gospel and surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. All of them are going to glory. All of them. That's a promise. And notice how inclusive it is. You're not the only one, but also let's flip that over. You're not left out. 
You know, sometimes it seems in this world that everybody's happy but you. Have you ever looked at Facebook? Have you ever looked at Instagram? The highlight reel of everybody's life. Boy, I wish I could take their vacation. Boy, I wish I was uh, married to someone like their spouse. Boy, I wish my kids were like their kids. Boy, I wish I had what they have. And you don't see all of the other stuff that goes on. Well, occasionally you do. But... um, Notice how uh, this is not something that's going to pass you by or leave you out. You're not going to be disappointed in heaven. You're not going to be disappointed and you're not going to look around and go, why, you know, am I not experiencing what everyone else is experiencing? It says all of the upright in heart shall glory. It's, it's good news. But notice that it talks about the upright, again, going back to point one, not just the upright in appearance, but the upright in heart. It's real. It's true. It's genuine. If you're upright in heart and you show compassion to someone, it wasn't for uh, someone else to see. It wasn't to be displayed on Facebook. It wasn't so that other people would pat you on the back. It was real because it came from your heart. It means that when you sing a song unto the Lord, it's real because you're upright in heart. It means that when you shun sin and pull away from temptation and go the other way, it's not you're doing it where you really want to do the sin. It's the opposite of that. You hate the sin and you want to pull away from its clutches because your heart is after God. The upright in heart. Very important here because performance doesn't change the heart, but changing the heart does change performance, doesn't it? And only God can change a heart. And notice that David says that they shall glory. Again, this is a future thing. And the word glory in the Hebrew, it means to shine. Those who are upright in heart, one of these days, you're going to shine. You may be put down right now. You may be ignored right now. But one of these days, you're going to shine. It has the idea of being recognized, and it even has the implication of being able to boast. Now, that's not in a sinful way, of course. To be able to boast in the Lord, to boast in His promises, to boast in His uh, victory. We're going to be proven right, in other words, David says. So hang in there and keep praising the Lord. And what kind of power is there in praise? In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in verse 22 and 23, Judah is at the point of a battle and these other nations are coming after them. It looks hopeless. But the Lord said, this is my battle, it's not yours. And this is a battle where the army goes out and they send the choir first. And they stand and watch God while they sing his praises. And I wonder sometimes when we face our battles, what would it be like if instead of whining, complaining, and panicking, what if we just praised the Lord and rejoiced in the Lord? The Bible says, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Isn't it interesting that the enemy destroyed themselves 
when God's people began to praise him. I wonder how many attacks we could avert if we would initially begin to praise the Lord. And even when we're in the midst of something that seems so tumultuous and so dark, so heavy, so overwhelming and so fearful, what if we did like David did in, these, in verse 10 of Psalm 64? And what if we found those reasons that are timeless and changeless? Those reasons where we can always praise the Lord. And what if we began to verbalize that? What if we began to focus on that? And what if the enemy heard us taking up the praise of God and putting on the armor of God as the old hymn says, each piece put on with prayer. Or maybe we could say this, each piece put on with praise. For God inhabits the praises of his people. So, whatever you're going through right now, praise the Lord. He is worthy of your praise. Thank you for taking time to listen to this. I love you. I praise God for you. And I pray that this message has encouraged your soul. Thank you. And may the Lord bless you.